0: Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and today we'll study one verse, verse 16. We are in the process of studying this this chapter, which is one of the most important in all of the Bible. It has been said that in order to understand the New Testament, then one has to have a decent comprehending of the Old Testament. And to understand the Old Testament, you've got to have a pretty good grasp on the book of Genesis. And really, to understand Genesis, you need to have a great grasp of Genesis 1 through 3. And to understand what's going on in 1 through 3, we've got to have Genesis 3 firmly in our comprehension. So we've spent a little bit more time on this chapter, Genesis chapter 3, than than we will with most of the chapters in the book of Genesis. But we've got to have this down, otherwise the rest of the Bible really makes no sense. That's where people make errors. They, they don't get it down here first. They don't get the foundation down, and then they move on to other things. We've got to have a foundation from Genesis chapter 3, or the rest of the Bible really doesn't make as much sense, at least, as it ought to make. In the final portion of Genesis chapter 3, there's a pattern that arises. I hope you've seen it over the last couple of weeks. First, God confronts the man. Then he confronts the woman. Then God gives an oracle against the serpent. Then an oracle against the woman. And then an oracle against the man. So it goes it goes, man, woman, serpent in the middle, and then woman, and then man. As I've pointed out a couple times to you already, we should notice that there is no confrontation between the serpent and God here. There's a confrontation with the man, there's a confrontation with the woman, but there's not a confrontation with the serpent. And we might wonder why, but then we would remember that confrontation happened a long time ago. The fate of the serpent has already been sealed. There is an oracle then against the serpent in verses 14 and 15. We studied that last week. There's an oracle against the woman in verse 16. And then next week we'll study the oracle against the man in verses 17 through 19. Now before we embark on this exposition of this challenging passage, by the way, in in verse 16, uh, and it can be emotionally charged if it's not handled carefully with sound exegetical method, let me remind you of five important preparatory issues. And these are all extremely important for us to understand all of the oracles, but especially the oracle against the woman. We've got to get these down, otherwise this oracle against the woman is going to be terribly misapplied. And it has been over the course of the history of the church, terribly misapplied. I don't want that to happen here. First, and this is the most important of these five points. First, these are not commandments to be obeyed, but rather declarations of how life will now be. The oracle against the serpent, against the woman, and against the man, particularly against the woman and the man, are not commandments to be obeyed, but rather declarations of how life will now be. Now, that will make a lot more sense in just a minute when we get into the text itself. For example, when a woman is in childbirth, this passage is going to speak about painful childbirth. When a woman is in childbirth, a Christian woman, it's not a sin for her to have an epidural. It's not a sin for her to have an acupuncturist in her knee where that pain site is or whatever it may be. It's not a sin for her to do whatever she can to minimize the pain. So these are not commandments. It's not commanding you, ladies, to have painful childbirth. But the reality is it will happen. We'll get to that in a, in a bit more. It's also not a, it's not a sin when a man who's, who we'll see in the next section, in, in, our, next, in our time together next week, It's it's not a sin for a man who is is now to have to earn his labor by the sweat of his brow to work in air conditioning. That's not the point. You see, that that would be totally sin. These are not commandments to be obeyed. Now, this is going to be huge in a minute. You'll see why. When we get to it, you'll see why it's huge. These are not commandments to be obeyed. But it's a declaration of how it's going to be. Because of sin, it was this one way. And now because of sin, it's going to be this way. There's a price to pay. Remember, we talked about accountability two weeks ago. There's a price to pay for sin. God just can't look the other way and say, well, okay, all 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 come free. It's fine with me. He can't do that. It it violates his very character. So something had to be done. But these are not commandments to be obeyed, but declarations of how life will now be. In this section, we're not going to only observe the punishments for sin, but we'll also see the relief God gave for sin. Grace is introduced in the oracles, and it's fantastic. Third, Technically, then, these shouldn't be called curses. Now, I know we do that a lot. Sometimes I might even slip up and do that at a time or another, the curse against the serpent or the curse against the woman, the curse against the man. Technically, these are not curses. These should be called oracles because an oracle may include both a blessing and a curse. Fourth, although the serpent was cursed by God in 3.14, the man and the woman were not. The Lord cursed the ground from which the man was formed. That's going to be in 3.17, but there was no curse at all related to the woman. There's a curse related to the serpent, and then on the oracle against the man, there's a curse related to the ground, not the man specifically, but the ground. There's no mention of a curse at all with regard to the woman. I believe that this reflected the value that the woman held as God's instrument for preserving the blessing of the human family. This blessing would be affected by the victory of the woman's seed over the serpent's seed. something that we spent quite a bit of time on last week. And finally, when we speak of a curse, we're referring to the idea of banishment from the place of blessing. Banishment from the place of blessing. All of creation, not just the man and the woman, but all of creation, all of creation, would now be barred from the fullness of fertility and harmony. Now, there would be fullness, in a sense, and harmony, in a sense, but it would not ever again reach the level it was designed to be because of the rebellion of sin. At least it won't ever reach it again until Christ comes a second time. In Genesis 3.15, we learned in the oracle against the serpent that there will be a perpetual conflict between Satan and the woman. That's the first thing we saw. Satan and the woman, singular. So there's going to be a perpetual conflict for the rest of Eve's life. There will be a conflict between the serpent and the and Eve. And then we saw that there would be a perpetual conflict between Satan's offspring and the woman's offspring. And I want you to notice again that this animosity is instigated by God. God's declaring this is the way it's going to be. Here's, here's a bit of divine irony Satan was instrumental in the woman's undoing, and the woman will be instrumental in Satan's undoing. That's God's sense of irony. And it's absolutely a beautiful thing. The identity of the woman's seed is clear. That's the human race. And even more specifically, one particular member of the human race, Jesus of Nazareth. One particular offspring. And we we learn this from subsequent revelation. The identity of the serpent's offspring is a bit more problematic. But by New Testament times, it was generally held that the serpent's seed included all, all who reject the Lord And opposed his kingdom. And and Satan, of course, is the leader of the rebellious. It's a reflection of good to submit to God. And it's a reflection of evil to rebel against God. So in that sense, we could say that there would be a perpetual conflict now. From the time of the fall on till, till Christ comes again, there will be a perpetual conflict between good and evil. Because there's going to be a perpetual conflict between The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent are those who rebel against God. And the seed of the woman ultimately is Jesus Christ who did not rebel against God. We're all born into the seed of Adam and in his rebellion, in positional relationship with his rebellion. After salvation now we become in a positional relationship with Jesus Christ. So there is a perpetual battle between good and evil that will take place from now till Christ comes again and settles the whole issue. But in the end, good's going to win. I know it can look a little dark sometimes. <laughs> we read the Internet, you look at the news, you, you get calls from overseas and different places, and you think, boy, is this ever going to get any better? Well, yeah, it is. One of these days. It will. It's not going to ultimately get better, though, till Christ comes. and that doesn't mean, I've heard so much misapplication here in the last maybe three, four, five years in Christianity, it doesn't mean that we sit on our hands and do nothing with regard to our culture. That I'm going to stay home, I'm not going to vote, I'm not going to express an opinion. If you don't do either one of those, you're going to get exactly what you got coming to you. Exactly what you got coming to you. You should be a voice, you should be a good citizen. Roman thir- Romans 13 tells us to be that. But we've got to know that this world is never going to be ultimately cleaned up until Christ comes again. But it doesn't mean that you can't do your part. If you see somebody hungry and you don't feed them, that's your problem. Don't blame that one on God. We need to be careful there. We finished up last time with these three ideas. Submission and obedience prove victorious over rejection and rebellion. It may take a while, but submission and obedience will ultimately be victorious. Good ultimately wins out over evil. And God is not the least bit intimidated Not the least bit intimidated by the rebellion of his creatures. He gives us the ability and the freedom to make free will moral choices. And then he holds us accountable for those choices. Now in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children yet or but. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Although the woman was deceived, she is nevertheless held accountable for her choice to believe the serpent rather than God. She listened to the serpent impugn the goodness of God. And then she took the serpent's side. Deceived, yes, she was. But she still had to be held accountable. She sinned. No doubt about it. The fact that Satan deceived her is no excuse. She still did the deed. And so God still holds her accountable. And in this oracle against the woman, the first part will deal with childbirth, and the second part will deal with her relationship to the man. Literally, verse 16 begins, And to the woman he said, this is God speaking, And he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and your conception. New American Standard uses the word childbirth, but actually the term there in the Hebrew text is conception. Since generally, I guess there could be exceptions to this, but since generally there's no pain involved in conception itself, and because the first phrase is further explained by the second, in pain you shall bring forth children. That's definitely the delivery part. We understand the pain of conception, and the pain of bringing forth children to be a figure of speech, representing the entire process of childbirth from beginning to end. Uh, Most women who have given birth can testify that there are certain discomforts all along the way, Uh, changes in hormones, changes in the the body, and, and so forth. There are discomforts not just at the very end, Labor pains are certainly the most memorable. I'm told. I'm glad that I haven't ever had to have them. I thank the Lord for that. I saw Cindy had three, three, all three of our children. She chose. It was her choice, not mine. I don't think I could have ever done it. She chose to have them all at home with the midwife, completely natural, with no, no painkillers or anything. And uh, I'll tell you what, you'll develop a respect from somebody with, for somebody when they can, when they can uh, do that. But, but uh, the labor pains are certainly memorable. But there are changes and there are discomforts all along the way in childbirth. And so that's what this first phrase is saying when it says that I'm going to greatly multiply your pain in conception. It's, it's, a, it's an idea that the entirety of the birthing process from beginning to end is now going to be uncomfortable. Where before, I suppose it wasn't going to be uncomfortable. Because remember, they were told to be fruitful and multiply before this time. Children are not simply a result of the fall. That's a, that's a failure. <laughs> I've heard that talk. I've heard that thought before. It's it's painful childbirth that comes from the fall. Not children. There were no children before that time. And that's one of the reasons I've speculated. Perhaps Adam and Eve were not in the garden for that long before they sinned. Because you would have expected some children to be there somewhere along the way with with two perfect uh, people in perfect environment. It would have been probably understood that that would have happened. Although the woman will participate... In the downfall of Satan by means of childbirth, the process will involve discomfort. The process of bringing down Satan, at least the woman's participation in it, will involve pain. And in addition to that, sin would taint the woman's relationship with her husband. There is so much misunderstanding with regard to verse 16. And I believe that that misunderstanding comes from this second part. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband. Many times the verse is taught this way. Listen carefully. People will say something like this. Perhaps even your study notes in your Bible might say something like this. Childbirth will be painful for the woman. Nevertheless... She will have an insatiable desire for her, for her husband from a sexual perspective. You get how it's taught. Childbirth is going to be painful, yet she's just not going to be able to keep her hands off of her husband. She just, it's, just, it's an insatiable desire that she will have. And I see some people are laughing. Don't do that just yet. <laughs> Time for that will be later. <laughs> Hebrew professor Bob Chisholm of Dallas Seminary once quipped, Apart from that concept of being totally divorced from reality, <laughs> I remember when he said that in the seminary class? I literally I was on the floor. I, I was I was holding myself up with Marmot, and all the single guys were just looking like, "What's what is, what's so funny? What's so funny about that?" No, ladies, that's just, that's not the way it is. Apart from being totally divorced from reality, it's actually bad exegesis as well. There's a much better way to understand this. Now, it's, a, it's, it's not necessarily a more pleasant way, but a much better way to understand it from an exegetical standpoint. The Hebrew word for desire here is only used three times in the Scriptures. Only three times. It's used here in, in 3.16. It's used in chapter 4, the verse uh, 7. It's also used in the Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10. Now, the idea of this, the, the, the sexual nature of that word here is actually an idea that's imported from the Song of Solomon back into the book of Genesis. The Song of Solomon was written some 400 years later, you'll recall. And, and, uh, and, and so people say, well, we've got the context of childbirth, and we have this word desire, which is used over in Song of Solomon for a, a sexual desire. Um, they think, well, well, perhaps that's what it means here, that the woman will not be able to get enough of her husband. And if you took strictly the Song of Solomon reference, that's what you'd come up with. But it's bad exegesis to pass over 400 years' worth of Hebrew literature to something that was written, uh, well, four centuries later, when we have the word used in the next chapter. And the word is not only used in the next chapter, but it's used in conjunction, in unison, with another very important word, mashal, to rule over in this verse, so we really shouldn't find it that easy, and it's, it also is, um, it's made a lot of, that's been misapplied, misunderstood and misapplied, so a lot of people feel like some, somehow there's something wrong with them when that is not the case at all. The word is used in the next chapter, chapter four, verse seven, if you do well, this is Jesus, or the second person of the Trinity, speaking to, the, to a Cain. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. But you must master it. You must conquer it. Sin wants to conquer you. It desires you. Now, not in a good way. I told you that it's not in a good way. Sin desires you. But you've got to conquer it. That's what he's going to tell Cain. Now, in exegetical method, it's much, much Better to take what happens in the very next chapter as an understanding of what's happening here than something that was written quite a bit later. So what this is, God is warning Cain in the next chapter. He's warning Cain, don't do it. Sin wants you. Evil wants you. Evil wants to conquer you, but you've got to conquer evil. Remember this perpetual conflict that's going to go on between submission to God and rebellion to God, between good and between evil. So don't do that, God is saying in chapter 7. Now back to chapter 3, verse 16. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband. And, or but, he shall rule over you. It could be taken either way. There was, I've been asked about this a lot too. uh, The question is, was there a leadership structure in the Garden of Eden before the fall? Or did the leadership structure only come as a result of the fall? I believe that there was a leadership structure in the garden before the fall, and that was based upon the order of creation. The man exercised leadership over the woman before the fall. They were partners. Partners, remember, the woman was his ezer, his helper. They were partners, and they were equals with respect to being created in his image. But there was still a leadership structure. Paul makes this clear in 1 Timothy chapter 2. There's a leadership structure that is based strictly on the order of creation. Now you may yell, not fair, but that's the way it was. And that's the way Paul explains it in 1 Timothy chapter 2. There was a leadership structure, but there was a partnership, a partnership among equals, and it was perfect leadership and perfect submission. There there was never any problem at all with regard to that. Until sin came along and messed everything up. Listen, we are held accountable. All of creation falls. God cannot just look the other way. There are problems as a result of sin. There will be conflict now in the relationship between husband and wife where there would have been no conflict before and where there will be no conflict in the millennium. And I don't know how all that's going to work out with regard to your present husband or wife. But but if you're born in the millennium, there won't be any conflict there either. At least it appears the conflicts will be minimal. Certainly in the internal state there will be no Conflict because the sin nature will be uh, obliterated. The idea of this verse is then, because the woman stepped outside of the divine order and prompted the man to eat that which was forbidden, the man will now rule over her. Now again, remember what I said before. That's why this was so critical and I hope you were listening. These are not necessarily commandments to be obeyed But this is a description of how life will now be. The reason I have to say that is the term for rule over here in the end of verse 16. And he shall rule over you. This word is the Hebrew word mashal. Mashal is is not a nice word. Mashal is a strong word. And it doesn't mean simply leadership. It It means something much more actually. This is where we've got to get this down or we're going to totally misapply it. It connotes mastery. It connotes dominion. It connotes lordship. It it connotes the idea of ruling with an iron fist. Now remember, this is a result of the fall. This is not telling us, men particularly, because this is where it's been grossly misapplied. Sometimes men will look at this passage and say, well, look at here. Man's going to mush over the woman. I'm going to rule you with an iron fist. No. No. That's not what this passage is teaching. It's declaring how it would be now because of the fall. Because we're going to have sinful natures. Because we're going to exercise inappropriate leadership. There will be knuckleheads out there that rule with an iron fist. And they deserve everything that they're going to get when they do that. You rule with an iron fist, you're not going to get love in return. Not now, not ever. This is not a commandment to be obeyed. It's a description of how life will now be because of something terrible that's happened. The fall was something terrible. Childbirth should have been a piece of cake. The entire process should have been a piece of cake. It's now not going to be a piece of cake. It's now going to be painful because of sin. The relationship between man and woman, men and women, there should have been a piece of cake. There should have been no battle of the sexes. There should have been no national organization for women. It should have never been needed. Nobody nobody would have ever even thought of that. There would have been no term radical feminism. Because there would have been no need for it. But because you have men who were radical jerks over a long period of time, then radical feminism crept in. And it's messed up a lot of things. A lot of things. Because of sin, this is how it will now work out. In addition to painful childbirth, the woman will experience a constant struggle within herself to dominate the man in marriage. And the man will, ex- will experience a constant struggle within himself not to lovingly lead, but to dominate the woman because of sin. Now, please hear me. <laughs> I don't want anybody here misapplying this. This is not telling women that they should attempt to rule over their husbands. And it's not telling men that you should attempt to mashal over your wife to rule her with an iron fist. That's not the Christian way. We see that in the New Testament over and over again. This is not how it was designed to be. This is how it will be as a result of sin. Now, that's the bad news. That's kind of depressing news, this this perpetual conflict. And if you're not married yet, you might think, well, gosh, I'm never going to get married. I don't want any part of that. (laughs) No, hear me out now. Because the effects of the fall, this effect, this perpetual conflict, while it's going to be there, that's a reality. The effects of the fall can be softened when one has trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and when one walks in fellowship with God. If you have a husband who is walking in fellowship with God as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in his life, the fruit of the Spirit, he will lovingly lead. If a woman is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and she's walking in fellowship with God, she will respond to her husband's loving leadership with willing submission, understanding that they're equals before God. You see, that's the key to a happy marriage. There's a lot of of things that that people could write about, but the one bottom line to a happy marriage is both husband and wife being believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and both husbands and wives placing Jesus Christ first in that marriage and both husbands and wives walking in fellowship with God, led by the Holy Spirit. That's when loving leadership comes into play. But when, husband, when Christian, and Christian husbands can walk out of fellowship with God, we do it all the time. These parts of the day, we do it all the time. When Christian wives walk out of fellowship with God, then will you allow me? All hell breaks loose then. And that's why in Christian marriages, the divorce rate is essentially the same as in non-Christian marriages. And that's a sad thing. Now, I know, according to Gallup, who does these polls, and, and Barna, who does them as well, The number ticks back and forth between unbelievers and believers, but it stays within a couple percentage points. That's a sad thing. You wonder why? The reason why is that too many believers are not walking in fellowship with God, and their husbands are not leading lovingly in the home, and then wives are not submitting lovingly in the home because of Jesus. If you go to Ephesians chapter 5, we'll see that Jesus is the role model for both husband and wife in marriage. Jesus was eternally and is eternally equal with the Father. Absolutely equal with the Father. Yet Jesus willingly submitted himself to one with whom he was perfectly equal. He was perfectly eternal. He's perfectly omnipotent. He's perfectly omniscient. Yet he willingly submitted himself to the leadership of one with whom he was perfectly equal. And the Father exercised, of course, perfectly, lovingly, he he exercised leadership. This is a tough passage, and this passage has been so grossly misapplied that I wanted to spend the entire lesson today just on this, because I don't want you to grossly misapply this. Yes, there is a leadership structure in marriage. Sorry, women, I know it's God's sense of humor he put us in charge, and I I realize that. Uh, I do. I I don't understand why he would have done that, but he did. He, He had Adam born first. But it doesn't have to be a bad thing. If we walk in fellowship with God, it can be a good thing. When I do counseling with regard to marriages, that's one of the first things I talk about. I want to make sure both people are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are, then we have a common bond there. If we're both believers in the Lord, if both in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I find out, then, then next I ask them. <clears throat> so if you come to me, this is what I'm going to ask. I said, do you really want to save this marriage? Is, is this something you're really working on, or are you just doing this so you can tell all your friends you talk to the pastor? Because I don't want to, you know, we, we can just say, okay, you talk to me and go on about it. But is, is this a marriage you really want to save? And if they both say yes, I say, well, then let's, let's work on saving it. And the way that you save a broken Christian marriage is for both husband and wife to turn their eyes away from the problems and back onto Jesus Christ. And then when, when the husband's eyes are on Jesus Christ and the woman's eyes are on Jesus Christ and they're both walking in fellowship then the fact that she leaves the top off the toothpaste every morning doesn't seem quite so bad anymore. You would be shocked at some of the things that are the final straws in marriage. You'd be shocked. So a Christian woman should lovingly respect her husband, and a Christian husband should lovingly lead not harsh dominance. Those who have used this passage to argue for male dominance in marriage, uh, or that male dominance has been prescribed. Now, dominance is different from leadership. Dominance is different. I told you a minute ago what it meant mastery, dominion, lordship, ruling with an iron fist. Those who would say that that is prescribed are actually poor exegetes of Scripture. It is described, not prescribed and the whole conflict between the sexes, the whole idea of the woman want, wanting to dominate the man, and the man wanting to then dominate the woman, that whole idea is not a biblical concept. Leadership, yes. Loving leadership, yes. Dominance, no. For believers in Jesus Christ, a life of submission to the indwelling Holy Spirit results in a much more harmonious and loving relationship than that which is described in verse 16 as being the norm nowadays. Just because it's the norm doesn't mean it has to be that way with you. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you is the second half of the verse. It doesn't have to do... With the childbirth. I've got an idea. It might work if we tried it. Why don't we try placing our attention upon God, not just in marriage, but in all aspects of our life, and let's see how that works out. I think it's going to work out a whole lot better than what we might think. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this passage that tells us of how life would be as a result of sin, but we also thank you that the effects of the fall can be softened by our relationship with you. Uh, Heavenly Father, I do pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is here without Christ, without hope and without eternal life, that that, that they would realize that you love them very much, that you love them so much that you sent your son to die as a substitute for them, and that they can simply turn to you, acknowledging that they need a savior, and trust Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to bless and to be blessed with eternal life. Father, as the Philippian jailer was told. When asked so long ago, what do I need to do, be, do to be saved? And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I do pray if there's anyone here this morning who hasn't done that, that that'll be, uh, that, that, that would be their decision that they would make today. And, and Father, for the rest of us who have trusted Jesus Christ to forgive our sins and who have been blessed with eternal life that can never be taken away, I do pray that each one of us would, would turn our eyes upon our Lord, that we, he would, that we would keep our eyes there so that we wouldn't have to live under the harsh effects of the fall. Yes, the effects will be there. I know that, Father, but may we not have to live under the harsh effects. May the effects be softened by our walk with you and our loving obedience and attention that we place on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we ask this. Amen.